Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. I am, once again, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. Before we get started, I just want to let listeners know that we have an unusually heavy couple of questions this week, including multiple letters uh, that deal with writers or their friends experiencing uh, profound suicidal thoughts. We're doing the best that we can to answer this thoughtfully, but if you or someone you know is having these kinds of thoughts, the very first thing you should do is call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It's 1-800-273-8255 or you can chat with them in real time or find resources at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. That's suicidepreventionlifeline, all one word, dot org. I have got a fabulous uh, fellow Slate guest in the uh, studio with us today that we're going to get to shortly. But first, I want to talk about an issue that's very dear to my heart, uh, announcing that people are lesbians. Which is not to say that I am outing people. I I, I tend to do this about uh, figures that loom large in pop culture, usually fictional. Uh, you know, longtime followers will know that I I feel extremely deeply that Captain James T. Kirk is a lesbian. Um, I don't always have great reasons behind this, but I feel it deeply. And I was taking a walk last night with my dog, and I just stopped in the middle of the road, and I said quietly to myself, Billy Joel, circa 1983, was a lesbian. And it felt so true that I wanted to cry and, and laugh at the same time. And I, and I just wanted to share that with all of you. I feel so strongly that anyone who sings about having a pompadour uh, and having so many feelings and trying to incorporate like doo-wop into the early 1980s music scene just is a lesbian. And that's such a good thing. And that's such a wonderful thing. So if you were wondering how Billy Joel could be a lesbian, that's how. Because of pompadours and singing about Chevrolets. Um, I don't have any further information for you than that. If you want to like go further down this rabbit hole, I invite you to to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. For the record, uh, I believe very strongly that Luke Skywalker is also a lesbian. Um, I, I do have, I think, some more uh, like hardcore evidence for that. Like if you were to rewatch the Star Wars movies, the original trilogy, and just ask yourself, would a lesbian do that? Um, I think the answer is usually yes. Um, And he's a wonderful, beautiful lesbian that we should all celebrate and uplift. Um, Again, please don't ask me to defend this premise any further. Um, It is a premise based exclusively on deep personal conviction um, and also everything that he wears and does and says and feels and how I wear and say and feel and do things, um, which is usually how I make most of my decisions. Um, So with that tidbit lingering at the forefront of your minds, um, I want to jump to a completely different topic, uh, which is a question that a listener brought up this week uh, about they and their husband were fighting over the possibility that one of them might someday have an affair. Uh, and the husband in question said, well, if you did ever have an affair, I'd be devastated, but I, I would want to forgive you. I would want to try to reconcile and, and, and rebuild our trust and stay together, which is all to the good. But but he followed it by saying, but I would have to then go have a reciprocal affair. Um, and I already answered that question in the column. I don't think it's a great idea uh, to, to just try to even the score, but that's not the point. The point is it reminded me uh, of an argument that I have had in the past uh, with with a partner, which is... If one of us goes mysteriously missing at sea, not is confirmed dead, but missing at sea, how long do you wait uh, out of sort of respect and or the possibility that there could be a last minute surprise, you know, island discovery um, before you move on? And this this applies not only to like public dating, but also like private hookups. And I feel very strongly that there's got to be a baseline of six months. Someone goes missing at sea, you owe them six months of celibacy. Uh, this is part of what made me so angry about the movie Castaway. I felt very strongly that Helen Hunt moved on too quickly um, and should not have sent uh, her new husband to tell Tom Hanks that she'd already moved on. That was a bad call. Uh, but yeah, you owe them six months. I don't care if you've only been official for a week and a half. They go missing at sea, they get six months. Uh, and then you have to add a week 
for every month that you are together until you reach the three-year mark, in which case you simply have to add a month per year. Because obviously, you know, at a certain point, adding a week would, would just run into uh, too much of the rest of your life. Um, but but you, you can't, you have to give them six months because it would be so embarrassing for everyone involved if five and a half months later, a plane sees them on a deserted island and they're like, it's me, it's me, I'm here, I've been here. And they're like, oh, thinking of you and getting back to you is the only thing that kept me going. And you're like, oh, I'm actually kind of, I'm kind of seeing someone, I'm kind of involved. And I don't want you to ever have to have that conversation. I want to save you that pain. So six months, we all have to agree upon it. There can be no questioning of this rule. Um, We just all have to get on board and agree to it no matter what. And I think that that will go a long way toward resolving any problems that you might be having in your own relationships. And I feel like that's a really good place to welcome our guest today, who is uh, Slate's Andrea Salenzi. You may know her as the host of the podcast Why Oh Why about the trials of modern dating, uh, which I have just been discussing. So uh, synergy, connectivity, all that kind of stuff. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being had. What do you think about my uh, Lost at Sea rule? I agree with it completely. I actually did a little research into being lost at sea once, and I learned that Mm -hmm. way more men survive from being lost at sea than women. So I wonder if that adjusts your scale at all. I don't think it should. Wow. No, I mean, good for them. Like, congratulations, men, on surviving being lost at sea. I, I have to wonder if that's because more men are lost at sea. Or, or, you know, historically have been lost at sea than women? I think that's likely. Also, I think a Could lot about the wear and tear on your body of being lost at sea. Like, I have a lot of things that I need to pluck and bleach. And, you know, I'm not like a super beauty Are queen. you suggesting that you would have died at sea because you didn't, like, bleach your body hair? The nipple hair, like, if you haven't seen me for six months, how how far are we going to be able to go together? Would it kill you? It wouldn't. Okay, you're not talking about issues of survival. I'm sorry. I thought you were implying <laughs> that more women died at sea because of, like, heterosexual beauty norms. And, well, and I think I was they, they, might, they might lose their will a little sooner. Here's the deal. I'm lost at sea. I come back six months later and someone says, oh, you've got some hair on your nipples. That person is not worthy of my fidelity and fortitude. <laughs> I just survived the pitiless sea. Like, I don't care if I come back with, like, a crab arm. Like, you owe me love. But no, but there's no sunscreen. I'm going to be covered in sunburns. There's no acne. There's no anti-aging creams. My skin is going to be bright red and peeling. I can't believe you're being so shallow about this real problem that plagues so many modern relationships. People are constantly being lost at sea and returning at the last minute. And here you are talking about tweezers and waxing. I'm furious. It's just not a beautiful time for me, and I appreciate that he's going to abstain for six months. I think this is a great plan. Well, I think you need to be harder on your partners and less hard on your inability to live (laughs) up to impossible beauty standards on an island of desert. Desert island, that's what they're called. Um, I think this bodes really well for the kind of debates and arguments and, and conversations we're going to have as we try to help other people conduct their lives. Um. And I think we should jump right into it. What say you? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Uh, I'll go ahead and read the first one. This is about a Thanksgiving-related apology. Dear Prudence, this Thanksgiving, I found out from my cousin that sometime after I came out to my mom, but before I told the rest of my family, she sent an email outing me to everyone. Apparently, I'd brought my then-girlfriend to a family event and introduced her as my friend. And my mom later emailed the family to apologize for my quote-unquote strange behavior and to tell them all that the friend I'd brought was really something more. This was quite a few years ago at this point. And while my mom did and said a number of pretty awful things when I came out, she did finally apologize to me this year and admitted that she handled things terribly. I'd resolved to forgive and forget and move on, but learning about this email has given me pause. Here's my dilemma. Part of me thinks that no apology will ever really be completely adequate and it's on me to decide to forgive anyway, so the email shouldn't change my decision. Another part of me wonders whether I'll really be able to move on if I never bring up what I've learned. What do you think I should do? Oh, man. That, uh... Yeah. That's fucked up. That's, like, presumably, I'm like, based on this letter, it does not sound like you actually were acting weird at the dinner table. It sounds to me like your mother was deeply uncomfortable with the fact that you had a girlfriend um, and wanted to displace that discomfort by claiming that you had been acting oddly and wanted to let everyone know they're not really friends. They fuck. Um, Which... (laughs) Sounds like your mom's problem, not your problem. Um, And that was a really, really messed up thing for her to do. Uh, Again, unless you guys were, like, playing patty fingers under the table. Um, 
which there's no evidence in your letters to suggest that you did, uh, I think that that was super out of line. I'm the kind of crazy person who would really want to see the email. I would want someone to dig it out of their inbox and forward it to me just so I could know everything Oof. that was said here. Because that, that, would that be really hard. could be a basis for, you know, knowing if you need an apology or not. Because she kind of already did get an apology here. Right, right. I, I think it, part of what's hard, I don't want to, I mean, I don't know if they've already seen the email. I, it can definitely be hard to see stuff written down. No, it's down. not a good idea at all. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I don't want to advise you to get the gory details. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a couple things here, right? One of which is, you know, when we come out, um, oftentimes, you know, even nominally supportive families, like, say and do um, uh, judgmental, unhelpful, uncomfortable, unkind things that later you're able to work through. Like that is sometimes a part of the coming out process. And it's great. It seems like you're really like trying to be graceful about this. And that's wonderful. Um, and you, you've put your mom on a learning curve and it sounds like she's doing better, which is great. Um, that doesn't mean, at least in my opinion, that you can't talk about this. Um, and I don't think that talking about this and forgiving your mother are mutually exclusive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I feel like part of her process was even maybe writing to you, dear Prudence, was uh, kind of you're having these feels and you almost want to make them smaller by sitting them out a bit. And then once you're calm and reasonable about it, then initiate this conversation, because I think I think forgiveness is on the way. And I think she's also pretty aware that there's this thing like it's on me to decide to forgive anyway. It always is. It'll always be on us to decide to forgive someone for treating us horribly. And that it's never two way. It's never like she says enough to me and then I'm able to forgive. It's always just on you. So I think you get yourself to a place where you could imagine forgiving this and then you sit down for that conversation. Right, right. Because it sounds like part of you, too, is maybe afraid of your own anger, which is that sentence. Part of me thinks no apology will ever really be completely adequate. And that's that's a deep and profound pain, right? Like, Like coming out to a parent. And having that parent respond badly is so painful. Um, Even if you're not the type of person who's hugely close with your family, just feeling like my parents' love is supposed to be unconditional and it is, in fact, incredibly conditional. Um, So I understand that there's a part of you that feels like, man, we're just getting to a place where I feel like I can kind of forgive her. She can kind of acknowledge that she hurt me. And I'm afraid if we ever really got into the ways that she failed to support me when I came out, I would never be able to stop feeling angry and betrayed and devastated. Um, And I I really hear that. So, like, if you feel like you are at a place where you're not ready to have that conversation, you can always put a pin in it. Um, If you're not in therapy, I definitely recommend that. Um, You can always make that, like, a conversation you would like to have. If you don't currently feel ready, absolutely, you can put it off. But if you do feel like you could say to your mom, I just want you to know, um, one of the things that's really painful to me is that, you know, a couple years ago when I brought my girlfriend to Thanksgiving, but you know, uh, wasn't ready to introduce her as my girlfriend that you told everyone else that we were dating um, and and kind of used as an excuse this strange behavior that I don't feel that I was exhibiting. Um, I just want you to know it makes me feel really, you know, betrayed, like I don't want to tell you things, hurt. And I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it better now. I, I've really appreciated your apology. It's meaningful to me. I know that we're both in a different place now. But I just need you to know that that hurt me. I think sometimes we feel like we can't say to someone just, I just want you to know that this hurt me. This is information I want you to have because I want to be close. I want you to know me. I want you to know what's going on in my heart and my feelings. Um, and I don't need you to fix it. Um, I don't need you to abase yourself. But I just want you to know that that caused me pain. Um, and if you feel like you can say that to your mother, if you feel like you can say it without getting like carried away on the sea of your own emotions, I'd really encourage you to do so. I, I think it would make you feel a lot less like you were carrying this secret pain and burden and resentment around that you couldn't share with your mother. Um, and if she's already said she behaved terribly, she might be able to receive like, here. here's a specific instance. Not to say like, by the way, you were so terrible that you did this and you're a shitty mom. Like, I don't think that's how you should frame it. But to say like, yeah, that really caused me pain. Um and to hopefully give her the chance to apologize for that specific action. Because that's really, don't don't out people over emails, guys. Yeah. And, and also, I would just be so grateful in this position to hear the phrase, I handled things terribly from, hmm. from this mother. I think it's so rare that you even get to that level of self-reflection from a family yeah. member that's hurt you. So I feel like there's, I'm hopeful about the situation because your mom already came this far. Yep. 
Yep. No, and I just, I, I feel very deeply those twin fears of one is I'm afraid that no apology will ever actually be enough. Uh, and the other one is I'm afraid that if I don't talk about this, I'll never really be able to find any sort of meaningful closeness with my mother. And I think you should pay attention to both of those things um, and to figure out when do you feel ready for disclosure? When do you think she could handle it well? When do you think you'd feel, you know, emotionally safe? Um, and and to consider making it a goal to have that conversation. Maybe you don't have it like right before Christmas and New Year um, if you celebrate Christmas. Uh, but maybe maybe like put it on your calendar to just like maybe have that conversation in a couple months. Maybe make that a goal. And I think that you will... I think it sounds like your mom will be able to receive it better than she could have a few years ago. Well, um, the next one is thornier and trickier, and I think this is going to take a little time for both of us because there's just so many issues here. Um, Do you want to go ahead and read this one? Yes. I'm kind of obsessed with this one. (laughs) I feel like it's one I get all the time, and I I still don't know what to say always. Um, Okay. The subject is dating depression. Every new year, I write a letter with three goals for the year. And then I read it on New Year's Eve to see how I did. One goal this year was to get into a relationship. I'm a 27-year-old straight white man and have never dated, despite trying in the past. I redoubled my efforts this year and still have nothing to show for it. And I don't get it. On paper, I should do just fine. I'm tall, in fantastic shape, successful professionally, and quite smart. I'm a bit reserved, sure, but I'm incredibly friendly and get along with almost everyone. I've had people audit my profiles, audit my pictures, audit my messages, and I've continually improved on all of these things. And nothing. I spent over 200 hours this year messaging women online and have been on two dates. Can I really be that ugly and not realize it? The despair from all of this honestly makes me want to kill myself. Uh, Man. Man, yeah. This is just... Like there's pain shot through every sentence of this letter, and I kind of just want to start by acknowledging like I we are not going to be able to fix this, right? Like the end of this conversation is not going to be, don't worry, we have these three simple tricks. You will be in a relationship next year and you will uh, find happiness and meaning and joy and and you will not feel despair, right? right. Like, I love advice. I listen to a ton of advice podcasts, but I don't believe in dating advice for some reason. Like anytime I see dating advice, I want to put the words in quotation marks because, there's no there's no guarantee in this life that you'll ever meet anyone who's going to love you. So I can give you all the advice in the world and it's never going to solve this. And right. That all I think about with this guy is how he kind of needs to solve his his despair before he's going to be able to fix the dating life. Right. I, I think one one specific piece of advice I do feel like I could give to this situation that might prove helpful Um I think this would be pretty simple. He says he spent over 200 hours this year messaging women online. Um, cut down that number drastically. Um, I, again, I, I'm not going to say, like, if you do that, you'll become happier and you'll attract people and you'll find someone else. I just don't think you should be spending 200 hours on something that's not yielding results uh, that make you happy. Um, so if nothing else, if absolutely nothing else, um, I don't think the answer to your problem is spend 300 hours messaging women online next year. Um, I, I think that there can kind of be this sense of if I just try harder at this and do better, I will get the outcome I want. And for whatever reason, this is not working out for you right now. I'm not going to speculate on why that is. Um, but let's just acknowledge that 200 hours did not bring you even two hours of of pleasure. And so you should stop doing it for a while, at least at least a year, frankly, like it is not working out for you. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or that there's something wrong with other people. It just means for whatever reason, this strategy is not helping your mental and emotional well-being. And I I want you to spend those 200 hours doing literally anything else, like taking a walk, getting a massage, working on a passion project, learning an instrument, talking to other friends, anything, literally anything, finger painting, 200 hours, like, make that your goal to not spend that much time messaging people online because it is not bringing you joy. And it's not going to if you turn it to three and four and 500, I promise you. That that much I do know. And as someone who spends a lot of her life swiping on these apps, there can be something really satisfying. It's like, if I just keep looking, if I just send the right message, then I can get there. But it's really hard to step away from that kind of... And there's a... And there's a rewarding behavior in that, too, where you get 
a match and then this little, you know, bunny flies by and you feel really happy about the world. But um, the apps want us to keep us, the apps want to keep us there. Right. The app they wanted is us not to bring yeah. you deep personal satisfaction. That's not why they're making money. Yeah. I agree with you about spending that time in another way and almost try to fill up your life. You know, I don't think that there's any guarantee we're ever going to have a rewarding romantic life anymore. Um, it's I don't know that that was ever a guarantee. Right. You're right. It wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. It felt like something I was promised as a girl. And I don't who promised know that where. To you? Who, maybe <laughs> Disney. Sure. <laughs> maybe my parents, you know, maybe uh, society. But. I think you have to fill up your life and be okay there before dating's really going to work for you. I think, you know, asking a work friend to lunch could be a better use of your time. Trying to take a sailing class or kickboxing. Just, you know, but don't do it with the goal of meeting someone. Take up kickboxing in in advice columns. I've never kickboxed a day in my life. I did it. I am newly single. I took up kickboxing. Oh, congratulations. Oh, good. I'm glad that someone's done that. <laughs> My calves are so sore right now. Wow. Um, um, but I don't know if it's going to solve everything, but it's going to give me a thing to do that um, will help me learn more about myself and meet people in my neighborhood, hopefully. Yeah. I, I think there's a couple things here. The first thing that I think is the most important to address is, like, if you are experiencing despair to the point of having suicidal thoughts, that's a crisis. That's an emergency. And I, I want you to take care of yourself. Like, um, I, I don't want you to feel like if I just try a little harder and push past this, I'll get to a place where those feelings won't come back. Like, I want you to treat yourself like someone who deserves to live and thrive. And if right now you are feeling even occasionally the desire to end your life, um, I, I really encourage you, tell a doctor, tell a therapist, tell someone that you feel close with, if that's a family member or a friend um, or, or somebody that you're close with, um, call a suicide hotline if you don't have any of those options available to you. But tell somebody that can talk to you like in real time who you either have a pre-existing relationship with or who is like professionally suited to help you. Because I think that that is so serious and so painful. And and I want you, regardless of whatever else happens to you in your romantic, your romantic life, um, I want you to be able to address that. And I want you to feel like you have help and resources and people who want you to live and be well. Um, I, I think that's that's number one, the issue here. And the other one is, I think sometimes with stuff like this, uh, advice can be a little pat, like, you know, if you stop spending so much time looking for someone to date and you just focus on yourself, then you'll attract more people to you. And I don't want to tell you that because I just don't think that's true. I think it is worth spending time taking care of yourself because you are worth taking care of. And I I would love to tell you that if you spend a lot of time being kind to yourself, um, having deep and meaningful conversations with the people that you love, building and nurturing your friendships, finding volunteer work that, um, you know, is meaningful to you and helps you feel useful and like you have a place in the world where you bring good into it, that then you will meet someone who is deeply attuned to to you. I cannot promise you that. But I, I think that whether or not lots of dating and romance is going to be a part of your life. I want you to have a life that you feel is worth living. And and I think that that should be your number one priority right now, not spending a lot of time hating yourself and then trying to message people, because I just think that's a recipe for further despair. Um, so I, I really think my, my biggest piece of advice to you right now is treat yourself like your own boyfriend um, I, I, or girlfriend. Sorry, I think he said he was straight. Um, is is and I know that that can sound ridiculous, especially if you're in a place where you're like, I'm so sick of myself. I don't care for myself. Um, even if you don't feel that way, treat yourself like you matter deeply, um, and take good care of this emotional ache that you have right now, because it will only cause you more pain if you try to fight past it, if you try to push it down, if you try to ignore it. And I don't want that for you. I think that that would be such a painful outcome. Um, so I really, really urge you to tell more than one person about this. Tell a doctor and a therapist and a friend and a family member. Like, call upon your support system. You've had people willing to look through your dating profile pictures, which tells me at the very least there are people in your life that you trust enough to say, hey, I'm trying to meet somebody. Will you help me, like, put my best foot forward? So you have people in your life that you trust to both be honest with you and, like, wish the best for you. And that tells me that you have people who would want to know that you want to kill yourself and they would be there for you if you were to ask. Um 
And I know that that's not what you were asking about. I, I know that what you want is to address this like very serious and meaningful desire, which is like to be in a relationship. And I don't want to diminish that or dismiss it or say like, don't worry about that. Just focus on yourself. Like that's a real desire. That's a real pain. And I'm so sorry um, that you haven't been able to experience that. But I, I just got to tell you, um, I, I think the only way through this very dark time in your life right now um, is by taking care of your own mental and emotional health. Um, not not by going back on any dating apps. Whew, sorry, that was a monologue. No, I loved it. I was there for every breath of it. Um, I can't I can't agree enough. And the other thing that strikes me in this letter is that it it feels like he's telling us that he's followed all the steps, you know, mm-hmm. and these are the right, steps. Right, if I follow told. these rules, yeah. someone will date me. I made it a goal. I put a lot of time into that goal. And why isn't it working for me? And I think you can't think of it that way. No one ever told you that one of those steps is is really loving yourself. That never came down in, in the dating advice literature. And another maybe. one of the steps is blind luck. Yeah. That you know, there are lots of phenomenal single people out there. And there are lots of people who are paired off who are not so great. Um, and I think maybe one thing that would go a long way toward easing that mental distress is realizing even being great on paper does not guarantee that you will be with someone. Um, it just doesn't. And and maybe releasing yourself from that expectation would be helpful because you think like, I don't understand it. I followed the recipe, so I should get this result. And that's just not how it is. And sometimes acknowledging painful truths is actually helpful in the long run because you can just say, there's nothing on paper a person can do to be like an ideal uh, mate for somebody else. Sometimes you do everything right and you don't get what you want. I get so much dating advice all day long, and a lot of people like to tell me that I've been doing it wrong, that hmm. uh, the most common thing I get is that I just need to settle more. Um, but it's not settling if you don't have anything to choose between. Right. And the other thing that I get is um, that it's a paradox of choice situation where there are just too many jams on the shelf. And if I had less jams, then I would be better at picking jams. And I'm sure someone could say, why are you being so picky in your online dating life? But the thing is that this is a situation where the jam chooses you too. And it's sentient jam. Right. And there's no no uh, advice really applies to that. And there's there's so much just luck and just sheer luck in it. And it's also geography it drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, just, there's... I've learned to picture a future by myself and be okay with that. And I, I don't think I'd be able to, I don't think I could go on without being able to be okay with that world this actually this makes me think of something this might be a little bit silly um but you also might find it helpful there's a book by a woman named marjorie hillis um she wrote it in the late 1930s she used to be the editor of vogue um and it was this little book called live alone and like it um it's obviously it's from the 1930s so there's plenty of of stuff in there that's wildly outdated um but it was this very like loving brisk, focused book that was just sort of like, some people never get partnered. What do you want to do with that information? Um, and she, I think, uh, got married once when she was 49. She was married for about 10 years, and then her her husband died. So she spent the majority of her life not dating, uh, not married, not with anyone, um, and was not, uh, like, real rosy about it, but was also not like, ah, this is a shadow version of a life that you must settle for. And it's just so different for everyone, right? Like, some people are thrilled to be single. Um, and that's fabulous. And some people are single and would love to be partnered. And, and I feel like there's there's got to be room for all of the different ways people can feel about their own singleness. And this book is just kind of fabulous. And it's just sort of like, okay, you are a single person. It's looking like you might be single for a while, possibly even for the remainder of your life. What would you like to do with that information? Um, and if you are interested in finding out a way to like craft a life that you find lovely and meaningful and and full of uh, you know close connections with other people, here's some ways that you can do that. Um, again, it is written by a lady who used to edit Vogue in the 1930s, so it's very specific in terms of like race and class and wealth and um, desires and goals and um, parts of it might not really apply to you, but uh, it, you might also find it kind of bracing and lovely. Um, and I just think. The most important advice I could give you, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff I could say about like your your strategies or, or what you're bringing to the table or the types of people you're trying to attract, but I just don't have that information. I can't speak to it. Um, but just to say, if I never am in a relationship, how do I build a life that's worth living? 
And then if a relationship comes, that's wonderful. But I, w- I would hate for you to feel like you spent your whole life thinking my real life will only start when I meet someone and everything I'm doing until and apart from that is just killing time. I don't want that for you. Today, I read a great article about the oldest woman alive who just celebrated her 117th birthday. And she says part of that key um, to growing old was being single and going to bed early. <laughs> so uh, I love that longer. every time every time there's an article <laughs> with someone who's over 100 years old, it's always like I was a vegetarian. <laughs> I had four shots of whiskey every day. I smoked cigars starting from the age of 50. Like it's always such wildly conflicting information. I no, love it. It's like, raw eggs, cookie and brand. Raw eggs, right. cookies, and brandy for her. Yeah. But also being That's single. <laughs> and going to bed early. Like, it's, yeah. life is such a rich tapestry. There's just not one thing that's going to work for everybody. Um, and I just I just feel deeply for this person, and I hope that he can take Me good too. care of himself because I think he deserves that regardless of whether or not he's in a relationship. Um, so good luck to you, and, and I hope that you are able to reach out um, for help in the people in your life. Okay, um, let's move. Let's move on to a, a slightly less uh, thorny question, but still an important one. Uh, this one is "Daddy's at home," which is always fun when someone puts "Daddy" in the subject line. Um, that's wonderful. Do you have like a special filter in your inbox for all the daddy stuff? <laughs> I should. I one hundred percent should. Okay, I'm going to read this letter. Dear Prudence. I'm a young woman in my 30s with a demanding career in which I must switch jobs and sometimes cities every two to three years. My partner and I have been ready to start a family for the past few years, but no time ever felt like the right time. Either I'm just getting started in a new job and working hours that seem completely incompatible with family, or I'm looking at my current position wrapping up within the year. In my field, women take a significant career hit for having kids. My partner also works full-time in the same field, but he has a tenured position. This year, for the first time, we found ourselves in positions that both come with significant parental leave, and we're finally pregnant after years of wondering when. My partner and I have talked about having him take most of the parental leave time, since his position is secure and mine is not. He's on board with his plan, but has expressed worry that his hyper-masculine work environment will not be accepting of this, and he might face discrimination and will miss out later when it comes to assigning high-profile projects. The feminist side of me wants to say, welcome to the club. Women have been dealing with this for a long time. But another side of me understands that it's still not the norm for men to take long parental leaves and worry that the attitude at work will attack my partner's sense of masculinity and self-worth, both while he's on leave and after he returns to work. How can I be supportive of my partner in this situation? So at first when I read this email, I thought that it was about who should take the parental leave. And then I read it a second time and I realized that it's just about how can I be supportive of him while he takes the leave. And I think that those are totally different questions. And I'm I like to imagine that who's taking the leave has been basically decided for this couple at this point. Um, But I think that question of how do I be supportive when someone's personal priorities are being compromised is going to be the most essential question of child rearing I can imagine. There are going to be constant situations where one of them has to give and the other one has to take. And I think that this is a good practice conversation for the millions that are ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think they've made a good decision. It sounds like even with the possible drawbacks for his future career, it makes more sense for him to take the majority of the parental leave. Um, a reminder that parental leave for parents of any and all genders is super important and part of why feminism can benefit everyone. Um, and just in general, it's not great to treat men badly at work when they want to take time off to be with their children. That is like a net good for society. Um, so, you know, if in your own life there are men who take time off from work to be with their children, um, be supportive and helpful uh, and and don't be a jackass about it and give them some time off. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's great. Like, obviously, I understand there's a party that's like, man, if I did this, I would also worry that I might miss out later on high profile projects. You know, people talk about the mommy track. And so there's definitely a way in which I can understand you would feel a little bit like, um, hey, this is not new. This is not a new problem. Um, but I think it's great that you want to support him. Um, and I think a lot of this is stuff that's going to come up and you just don't know. I would be more worried about supporting him through, like, possibly missing out on projects and getting passed over for stuff at work um, uh, than than the stuff about his self-worth. Because, you know, hopefully he's a person who feels like he is worthwhile, um, even if he is raising his children instead of um, going to his professional job on a daily basis. Um, that would be that would be ideal, I think. 
uh, to not have your worth based solely on your job performance. Something I was thinking about is I have an uncle who was a stay-at-home dad and had this amazing, vibrant community of other stay-at-home dads who he hung out with. And I wonder if there's a similar kind of resource where he could learn how other men have stayed essential in their workplace. But we're not talking about committing to staying at home with the kid. We're talking about adding just taking leave yeah. six weeks. And I can't imagine that really making a huge difference. Yeah. That, that I, I, isn't I, supportive and understanding of me. I have no idea what they mean by significant parental leave. Like this industry is baffling to me because everyone has to move and there's tenure and it's hyper-masculine. So I'm just picturing like professors of oil rigging or something. Um, so I'm trying not to get like, but significant I'm assuming is maybe a year, maybe more. So it's not necessarily like just a matter of taking a couple of weeks off. Um, it It is a real, you know, shift for him. Um, and I think it's wonderful that you want to be supportive. Yeah, I think encourage him to find other um, men who are either stay-at-home parents or who have taken, you know, the the lion's share of parental leave would be so helpful because they might have like, they might have meaningful experiences they can share and be like, yeah, I went through that. Here's how I handled it. Here's some pushback I got at work and here's what I did as a result um, for him to have a little bit of a community like that. And for you to encourage us as partner for him to find that would probably be very helpful. And I'm the kind of person who feels insecure even taking a sick day, like everyone's going to look at me like, uh, what a slacker. But um, I feel like when you're taking this kind of significant leave, it's part of your assignment to make sure everyone there knows how enthusiastic you are about what you've been working on and how excited right. you are to to see the future of your career play out in this space. Um, but also, it sounds like he's in a they use the phrase tenured position. So there is an element of security there that maybe is similar to me being afraid of a sick day where yeah. um, you just you want to feel vital. And I wonder if part of the worry is about feeling vital while not being at work. Yeah, which I think any parent who is, to, you know, facing the prospect of taking significant time off from work to, to raise a young child would, would face. And I think you're already really well situated. Like, it sounds like you want to be supportive. Um, you know, you know, there's a part of you that feels a little bit resentful because he's experiencing something that, you know, that like women have tended to experience more as a group. Um, but I, I think like by like being there for him, being supportive, listening, if, you know, a couple years down the road, he says, I feel like my coworkers are giving me a really hard time for having taken time off. Like as his partner, you can't fix that for him, but you can say, I'm so sorry. Talk to me about it if you want to. Like, you know, be a sounding board for him. Be, you know, uh, be a respite from that. Like, you know, make it clear that, like, you value his contribution to your family by by taking this time off. Um, and I think it sounds like you're already prepared to do that. Um, but yeah, I, I think getting in touch with other men who have done something similar would be really helpful for him because that is like concrete and tangible and like other people do this. You can get through this. Um, you can I'm, I, hopefully there are people at work who will not be like, you took time off to be with your child. What a loser. Um, right. Because like that's shitty. People shouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, life is a rich tapestry and, you know, in almost any workplace, uh, even if it's really different from your own, I'm sure you'll be able to find somebody who's going to be a real piece of shit about something that you feel really strongly about. Um, so it's just important to remember that there's definitely places where attitudes uh, about men taking parental leave are, um, you know, outdated and the worst and counterproductive, certainly, to, like, uh, employee performance. Um, yeah, and to just make sure that, like, when he does eventually transition back to working full-time, um, that he feels like he has a network of other guys he can reach out to, um, that you're available to listen when needed, um, and that he has at least one or two people, like, maybe a supervisor or somebody else at work who, you know, is there for him that knows that, like, he was really glad to spend time with his kid, but also is excited to come back to work, um, and is not looking to, like, be checked out at work, right? Like, that he's not just like, oh, now that I have a child, I don't really care about my job. And I just plan on like putting in FaceTime and then going home. And also how nice to be able to help establish a new norm for the, the space where you work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That you could be a part of maybe making it easier for, for other men who want to take that time off in the future. Right. Whew. Good luck. It sounds like you guys are going to be really good parents, frankly. You both sound thoughtful. Right. And if you can handle all these moves, you're going to be I mean, there's I think there's a lot of partnering that has to I think there's a lot of lessons in communication and partnering that happens if you have to completely rebuild your life every time you're mm -hmm. moving two to three years. And yeah. I think they're totally 
they got to be pretty solid by now. Yeah. Hey, maybe uh, the next time they move, he will uh, be in a workplace where everyone's super chill about parental leave and everyone is just like super up to date on gender issues. Maybe it's time to tell we the. Uh, hope. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's a time to hit that bell for another move. Um, well, uh, speaking of fathers, our next letter is also about fatherhood and it is a doozy. It is the most doozies of all time. Um, I'm going to let you read it, actually, because I don't want to. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a lot of details in here. Um, and this is, it sounds like this is the father writing. Well, that's the, that's the question, ah! friend, is, right. is this person the father? Right. Prudence. Spoiler alert, listeners. <laughs> no, it'll, it'll, it'll give you some more context for this beginning. Dear Prudence, I'm living a difficult dilemma. I'm in a relationship of seven years that is ending. We have a little boy of five, which I love so much. Since he was born, I've developed a very strong relationship with him, and I sure don't want that to weaken with my divorce. Every day I run home from work to play and try to spend as much time as I can with him. Actually, my boy is the very reason that I like to use when explaining my why my relationship with his mother didn't end much earlier. My relationship with her didn't really work very well for many reasons. I've struggled to stay in the same house and keep the relationship with her barely alive. We have good sexual chemistry, but that's all, mostly in order to keep close with him and avoid him having to face the difficulties of living in another man's house. I have little doubt that I'm really his biological father. He doesn't look a bit like me. And I know now that his mother cheated on me sometime near his conception, but I'm not sure of the timing. I do not trust her to have this conversation honestly and openly, and I'm sure she will lie about it if there's anything to hide. I've thought a lot about having a DNA test, but I question myself if, actually, I'm somehow trying to legitimate myself to the decision to move out and put an end to my relation with his mother. Since I love my boy so much, I'm very clear that I want to keep very close to him, and I fear that if my suspicions were true, acknowledging this would destroy the best thing I have in my life, which is my relation with him. So I'm afraid of him knowing that I'm not his biological father, and I'm also afraid of keeping myself in this doubt forever, which causes some pain also. Uh, I think that's that pained groan is the most advice I've got <laughs> at present. I feel like we've ended every letter today with a pained groan of some kind. I feel like I actually do that a lot on this podcast. <laughs> I just need to like make that be my first response so that I can sort of marshal my thoughts. Uh, all right. So this is obviously a lot, a lot. And I think the most important thing to pay attention to is is that last paragraph, which is, I love this boy. And I want to keep really close to him. Uh, so that tells me, right, it's not like I'm not sure I'm his father and I don't think that I want to be in his life. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure that, like, I, I, I've got one foot out the door already. So, like, if your goal is to remain close to this five-year-old child, um, I don't see how you can do that and get a paternity test at the same time. Um, I just don't. Uh, I don't know how you'd explain to a five-year-old, I love you, but I am kind of sure your mom cheated on me. So I checked, and you're actually not my biological son. So I still want to hang out, but I'm not going to be your—do you know what I mean? Like, you can't—you can't—you can't take your five-year-old who's been your son for the last five years and be like, you know what, this stuff's just moving too fast. Things are really crazy at work right now, and I just need to take a step back. Can we just, like, casually date? You know what I mean? Like, you can't do that to a kid. But I hate the idea that he, as the kid grows up, he's going to be constantly looking at his son and saying, gosh, do you look like me? Do you act like me? Do you think like me? Could you be mine? And and having that thought constantly forming a wall between them. And I wonder if there's a way that he could just mentally commit that this will be his son forever, no matter what the results are, and then wait until that commitment seems right. completely firm for him and then possibly do the test yeah because i mean if, if whether or not he's your son you can still promise to love him his entire life and right. support him right i think that that's really crucial is that like he may not be your biological son i it, i he also may be right like lots of people don't look exactly like their parents um and so i think if you spend a lot of time like staring at his face looking for clues that he is or isn't yours you will drive yourself batty um i, I don't recommend that as a strategy um but to say, like, would I be prepared to 
not be a father to this boy if I found out he was not my biological child. And if you if that's not the case, I think put off the test perhaps indefinitely like if you know that you still want to act as his father because it doesn't sound like anyone else is stepping up to the job uh it doesn't sound like there are any other contenders um then i think you should you know uh continue to have a strong relationship with him continue to not be involved with his mother who sounds like a really challenging person to co-parent with um i think the fact that you feel like you don't trust her to tell you the truth if you had a conversation says a lot about the like level of mutual trust and respect in your uh, relationship with her um but yeah I, I think it sounds like she has been a really bad partner and that's awful um but you you have to think of of the child more than her right um because it's not his fault um, and you have spent the last five years as his father. He doesn't know anyone else as his father. No one else is offering to to take over. Um, and so you know that if if you were to do the test, if you were to find out that he wasn't yours biologically, um, I don't know what you would do with that information right now. Like he needs a dad and you have been doing that job for the last five years. And I think that you should um, I think you should continue to do it. Like, I think this kid sounds pretty lovable and you should continue to love him as a parent, um, even if he is not genetically yours. Um, and maybe keep your contact with his mother to a minimum. Go into therapy for sure. I, I think it totally makes sense to feel betrayed and angry and confused and uncertain. And you should work all those feelings out um, with a professional who is not a five-year-old boy who calls you dad. Um, I think that that would be an appropriate way to to deal with some of those feelings. Um, but I just don't know how getting a paternity test right now, given that you want to keep him in your life, would be helpful to you or the decisions you're trying to make. I also wonder if, as things have grown worse with the boy's mom, um, I wonder if that's affecting the relationship where if you're preparing to leave, your relationship with her is only going to become more challenging and your trust that this boy is going to be your son forever no matter what needs to be solid. Right. In the middle of a divorce, there's so much going on. Um, adding a paternity test to that mix is not going to be helpful to you. You absolutely have a right to deal with your feelings about your ex and about uh, the ways in which your relationship fell apart. And I think that the best and most appropriate venue for that right now is therapy. Um, and you say that this boy is the best thing in your life. You say that literally he's the best thing in your life. Um, so, so operate with that as your guiding principle. My relationship with my son is the best thing of my life. What can I do that would preserve and enhance and protect that? And what could I do that would weaken and uh, strain that? And and kind of always ask yourself that question before you make a decision. And I think that that will be helpful to you. That doesn't mean you can't ever try to figure that out. Uh, you know, it may be that someday it, it becomes clear either through some revelation of hers or through some, you know, jarring resemblance to someone else that you know, um, or, you know, as he reaches adulthood, you might want to have that conversation. But again, I would just proceed with caution. Like for all intents and purposes, you're his dad. Um, and you're doing the right thing in divorcing his mother. Um, spend as little time with her as possible. Be polite, but don't get involved in in her destructive behavior um, and focus on your kid. Um, yeah, I feel I feel bad. I feel bad. I'm sorry that you're in this situation. I'm sorry that she's done these things to you. Um, and I'm sorry that you feel like you can't even have an honest conversation with her. Um, that sucks. But I don't think that the paternity test would help you with any of those things. All right. Last question. Last question. No one here is a dad. So we at least know we are not dealing with anything where we might be like breaking up a family, right? Like we at least have that going for us in the last letter of the day. I'll go ahead and read this last one. Dear Prudence, one of my friends has been using me as a free therapy service for the past couple of months. Almost every day after work, he messages me and talks about how the only reason he hasn't killed himself is the fact that he is friends with me and a couple of other people, and he wishes that we would go away. I have been getting more and more concerned, and all of us have been, getting, have been trying to get him to start therapy, but he refuses. Last night, he signed off suddenly with no warning, and so I contacted our other friends to try to reach him, since the resources I had on talking to people who feel suicidal said to contact any support I could. For more backstory, it took four years of work before he counted me as a friend, and he's recently moved to a different state for grad school. He's expressed that he feels lonely there and didn't have a large friend group to begin with. I also lost another friend to suicide in the past year, and that was the first time I knew someone my age who had died. He knows how badly shaken that left me. When he found out that I'd contacted our other two friends, he threatened to cut us all off and unfriended two of us on social media and blocked me on a chat application. 
An hour later, he told us to make our case for his forgiveness. And I refused, stating that I would rather he was angry at me and alive than cutting off all his friends or dead. Part of me feels guilty for not making peace with him, but another part feels like I was emotionally blackmailed with the threat of ending our friendship and him also cutting ties with our other friends. I'm exhausted, and I don't know what to do now. Was it even right to contact the others? Should I try to apologize, even though I did what I thought was best? I should have been saving my pained groan for this one. Obviously, I have used up all of my pained groans, and this is definitely the one I think that calls for the the most pained groan, and, and now I, I don't have any left. Are you sure? Because I could hear one more. <sighs> Man, it, it is. I feel like, yeah. No, go ahead. I wonder. I wonder if we could have stopped reading right after the first sentence. Mm. One of my friends has been using me as a free therapy service for the past couple months. Mm. I feel like we knew the whole story starting right then, but it's not even just therapy. It's therapy, and then this friend has also been trying to wield emotional power over you and your friends. Right. Um, uh, you know, there's. Such a distinction, I think, between trying to support a friend who is depressed and suicidal um, versus dealing with a person who wields the prospect of suicide or complete social shunning as a tool to control other people. Um, I, I think one crosses the line from depression to um you know, borderline emotional abuse. Um, I, I don't want to make any like sweeping claims about his mental health or any diagnoses he might have. I really don't want to do that on the show. Um, but you're absolutely right that it is not okay um, for him to either demand uh, that you make the case for him to forgive you for being concerned about his safety. Um, and I think also... Um, that he would tell you that you're the only reason he's not killing himself and that he wishes you would exit his life. Um, that's not an appropriate burden to put on you. No one is responsible for another person's life. Um, you cannot either help him want, you, you can't make him want to live and you could not be responsible for his suicide. Um, this is really painful and complicated and, and I, I don't want to say anything that would be like additionally painful for you, but I just think if there's nothing else you get from this, just know, um, you could not possibly be responsible, um, for his well-being. You're, as a human being, you are responsible for being like compassionate and for setting boundaries and for offering help to people when they need it, but you are not responsible for like unilaterally keeping him alive. Um, that is not an appropriate burden for him to place on you. And I just really want to echo that that was like a real violation of your friendship and your trust. Also, this question of should should the letter writer apologize? I don't know if there's an apology that you could ever make. I don't right. know if there's any words that you could say that would ever change or stop this behavior. I feel like it's destined to escalate no matter what you say or do going forward. and. My, my, the thing I don't have an answer to is: Do you, does the letter writer cut off all contact now? Does the letter writer write a last email? Like, is there any? What on earth is the next step if they're if you're dealing with a person who is behaving in this way? Yeah, I, an I, I would certainly encourage you. I know that I just did this in a previous letter, but to contact um, one of the national suicide hotlines because um, they're not just for people who are themselves suicidal. Um, but to talk to someone who can, again, answer your call, talk to you for a long time, put you in touch with resources, um, you know, put you in touch with mental health services and say, I have this friend who's suicidal. Um, and they're also behaving in ways that I feel like are, are deeply painful and manipulative for me. Um, and to ask for help in terms of like, how can you be helpful while also not taking on the burden of his, uh, like, whether or not he lives or dies on yourself? Because um, I, I don't I don't think that I would encourage you to say I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Um, but I also don't think that you need to apologize. I don't think that would be helpful. I don't think that would help him and I don't think it would help you. Um, I, I think it's really fair for you to say I won't apologize for being concerned about your well-being. Um, I don't want you to kill yourself. I want you to seek help. It's deeply concerning to me that you're not. Um, and and I, I'm not going to lie to you uh, about my concern. Um, and to see how he responds to that. And if he cuts you off um, as a result of that, um, 
you know, depending on whether or not you know, like, what his relationship is like with his family, um, if, if you can get in touch with someone who might live closer to him, um, who might be able to um, get him in touch with mental health services, if you feel like he is in immediate danger to himself or to other people, um, to talk about the possibility of, of a psychiatric hold, which is definitely, like, extreme, but it sounds like may, may be necessary in the near future. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would say, number one, call a suicide hotline. Um, and get more in-depth advice about how to proceed. Um, do not offer an apology because I don't think that would be helpful. I don't think that that would help him um, take better care of himself. Um, and and reiterate your concern and say it's really not okay um, that you're feeling this level of suicidal ideation. I'm concerned about you, and I'm not going to stop being concerned about you, and I want you to get help. Um, I think those would be kind of the three main points that I think are the most important, at least on my end. I completely agree with all of them. and But also, I just, you said in here that you lost another friend to suicide in the past year. And I'm so sorry. And I, I've lost friends to suicide in the past also. And it, for me, it just made it that much more of a, we can't talk about suicide casually around me kind of a zone. And I feel like your friend needs to know that about you, that, that, if it might seem like you're that you're going to you know code red with this but you're going to go to code red because you lost a friend before that's just how you're going to react and that this isn't a casual thing for you anymore so i agree with everything mallory said about seeking out serious help here yep yep no but i think your instinct to not want to apologize for acknowledging that your guilt is is misplaced is really important. Um, and and to say you want to help and be supportive, but you will not do so at the expense of either like your own mental health um, or or by apologizing for your feeling concern. Like I think those are two really appropriate boundaries to draw. Um, and and I hope that you will prioritize your own well being as much as you're prioritizing him because you're going through a lot. Um, and and that's really difficult to do. Um, God, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm just really sorry. I, I feel like I've got a couple more pained groans in me, but that's not how I want to end the show. So, um, I'll just say, um, good luck to you. And, um, I hope you can, you know, write us back if you have an update in the future, let us know how you're doing. And if you've been able to, um, have a meaningful conversation with him about his well-being. That is the last of the letters, Andrea. Um, Thank you so much for uh, helping us uh, settle all these various questions from how long do you wait when someone's lost at sea to um, what do you do uh, if you want to be a dad to someone who is maybe not your son? And if only all the answers were as easy as six months and remember tweezers. I mean, and we can even lose the tweezers, guys. Uh, just just the six months is really the, the key part to, to remember <laughs> is everyone deserves six months of walking, you know, uh, along the beach looking for a beacon on the horizon. Wait, if you guys have like five seconds more of studio time or one answer worth of studio time, could I ask Prudence a quick question for my <gasps> podcast? Yes. So as you know, I've been doing a dating advice podcast and I'm doing an episode, I'm working on one right now where I kind of collect all the weird dating advice I've been getting from people. And, you know, it's bananas. It's nonsense. Very little of it's actually going to work for me. Mm. Um, do you have actual dating advice for a single lady who's 31 who wants to have one kid in like nine years? Are you heterosexual? Do you mind my asking that question? No, no, no. No, don't. not at it's all. It's fine. Sorry. No, I, that's I, the pro I mean, that's part of the problem is how I feel is that I've arrived in my adulthood and men haven't really caught up with me for the most part. For sure. Um, <laughs> just because I assume you are not going to be getting this type of advice um, from other uh, participants in this, uh, I, I want to make a case for don't date. Just don't. Yes. Um, that just, sounds so just much easier. <laughs> putting it out there, that is a possibility available to all of us. Do not date. Um, just don't do it. Don't. That's my <laughs> advice to you. I, I, you're going to get plenty of advice about yeah. how to date and when to date and who to date and how to do it. Um, but I want to have just this one kid someday. So and have I a kid. Do it with a partner. No, well, no you're right. Yeah. I yeah. actually, I've already, I've already started asking friends to be that. Like, could you be that person? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I gives, mean, gives I me know sperm. it's not yeah. as easy to say, hey, does anyone want to be like a platonic co-parent? Um, I, I don't want to like throw that around real lightly, but like at least like look into alternative family arrangements. Queer people have been doing it for a while. Communists have been doing it for a while. I mean, not always ideally, uh, but you know what I mean. Uh, like there's lots of alternate family arrangements out there. Some people also want to have kids and don't. Um, that is a possibility. You know, just just like take a look at the stuff that does not immediately present itself as delightful and just think like, could I do that? Would that be interesting? Would I find value in that? What would it look like if I didn't date? Um, and if I raised a child as a single parent or if I enlisted like family and friends as support or if I were to get involved in like a co-parenting situation with someone who was not my romantic partner? Um, yeah, I'm just going to make a case for think about not doing it. I'm going to read your I'm going to read this um Marjorie Hillis book. Oh, it's fantastic. It's it's so good. Even if you only live alone for like six months of your life, it's a great book to have read. Let's throw that out there to everyone. The possibility of not dating. It is an option. You don't have to. It is not mandatory. There will not be a quiz at the end of your life. Um, take it under advisement. You can date if you want to, but you don't have to. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews help new listeners find the podcast, and then they ask us questions, and it goes on forever in a deeply virtuous cycle. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it to 30 seconds or a minute and send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. 